Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Good to see you all here. Thank you so much for coming. It's a great weekend, July the 4th weekend. Always a great celebration. God bless America, and America has truly been blessed over the years. We live in a great country where we have been bountifully blessed. And with that blessing that we enjoy as a country also comes with it responsibilities. Many have quoted over the years in one form or another in reference to our country, with great privilege comes great responsibility. Uh, People have attributed that phrase, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill also have all offered similar renditions. It's actually traced back to the French Revolution of 1793, where they said to one country that they must consider the responsibility that they have after all of the, the great blessings that they have. It's even been attributed to Peter Parker, alias Spider-Man in his movie where he said, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, but we all know that it, personally, we know that that pretty well works out in our lives as well. You know, uh, if we were to inherit a large sum of money, we instinctively know that with the inheritance of that large sum of money comes the responsibility that we have to be able to use and distribute that money wisely. Whether or not we how much am I going to give to the church? How much am I going to give to a charity? How much am I going to save? Or how much am I going to invest? With that privilege of inheriting that money comes with it the responsibility that we have. But you know, ultimately though, whether or not we're talking about the country or talking about it personally, ultimately it reflects a biblical principle. The biblical principle is found in Luke chapter 12, where it says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. Ephesians chapter 4, 1, Paul talks that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In other words, because of the calling that we have, we are to live out our life in gratitude because of the great blessings that we have inherited. The Bible teaches plainly that salvation is a gift of God's grace, but it also makes it clear that with our redemption carries with it the responsibility and the obligation to live out our life in gratitude for everything that he has done for us. Our actions do not justify us, but our actions reflect, reflect our right relationship with the Lord. You know, living rightly with our Lord is not a list of to-dos and don'ts, list of things that trying to please God, but it's a life lived out of gratitude for everything that he has done. And by the way, let me just mention that when I say privilege here and use the word privilege. I'm not talking about privilege in any type of social context, but I'm talking about privilege in a spiritual context. The spiritual privilege that we have all received by being believers in Jesus Christ. And with that high privilege that we have that has come with our salvation also brings with it great responsibilities. 
The question then becomes is, well, what are those responsibilities? Well, that's exactly what Peter is going to talk about in our passage today. So if you have your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the second message in our series. This is entitled Hope Refined in the study of 1 Peter. We need a hope that works. In the light of everything that's happening in our world, we need a hope that works that really goes to the grassroots of the issue. And last week, Cody talks about the living hope, that Christians have a living hope that allows us to be able to thrive amidst all of the trials and all of the suffering that we currently experience. And Peter was writing his book right before Nero's persecution began in AD 64. Christians at this time were no doubt experiencing a little bit of persecution, but it was nothing like they were about ready to experience under Nero's persecution. And Peter is writing to encourage believers. We know that from chapter five. But the way that he goes about it is absolutely genius under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In the first part of the book, he talks about our salvation and he roots us in the blessing and the privilege that we have in our salvation. In the middle section of the book, he talks about submission. And then in the last part of the book is where he really ends up, where he talks about their suffering. The genius about it is, is that you'll never understand your suffering until you are submitted to your salvation. And the fullness of that rock of everything that we have in our salvation that's found there. And last week in the First nine verses, Peter called his readers to rejoice in their present suffering because of that future hope that we have in the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are chosen aliens, as Cody mentioned. We are pilgrims passing through. This is not our home. We are not to put our hope on the things that we see, but we are to put our hope on the things that are eternal. And then verses three through nine, which Cody talked about last week, we, talk, we saw the provision of that salvation. Now we look at the products of that salvation. And in this products section, we're really looking at the privilege that we have in verses 10 through 12. And then also we see the responsibilities that Peter wants us to have in verses 13 through 21. So let's look at verses 10 through 12, where we see that we have the high privilege, the high privilege of a living hope that's rooted in our salvation. Look at what it says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that we have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. We have a spiritual privilege that the prophets did not have. He says, concerning this salvation, and that's a, very inclusive term, which includes not only the, the now salvation, but the future salvation. We have been saved. We are being saved. We shall be saved. Very 
full statement, but in the Old Testament, the Old Testament predicted the, the sufferings of the Messiah. But they also predicted the future glories of the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom. But for them, they were really unable to see exactly how that all fit together. They knew that they were both true, but exactly how that all fit together, they weren't really quite sure. You know, notice that the prophets here, when, when, they, when they say, they were not just some sort of religious guru, but they were people through whom the Holy Spirit spoke and gave these prophecies. But at times, they didn't really fully comprehend everything that was being communicated through their prophecies. They didn't completely see the full significance. And so consequently, as it says, they realized that God was not going to be able to fulfill all of the prophecies during their lifetime. And so they were consequently not serving themselves, but they were serving you. And the whole point is that God had fulfilled the, the prophecies of Jesus' sufferings, but they were yet trying to figure out how they were going to bring about the messianic rule. And even the angels were peering in to try to, try to see. In fact, not only do we have privileges that the prophets didn't have, have, but we also have spiritual privileges that the angels do not have. One commentator wrote, and I love this, he said that the church is God's university for angels. The angels were looking into, peering into is the word there, peering in, looking in, to see how these individuals who had been granted such a great privilege of the salvation of Jesus Christ dying for their sins, being raised from the dead to be glorified, how these creatures were now going to respond in light of everything that was going on in their life. And they were, they were looking in, they were peering in to see. You see, there's joy in the presence of Angels, when one believer comes to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But the angels have no part in the plan of salvation. They aren't really able to know the joy that comes with placing our faith in Jesus Christ and having our sins forgiven. They are unable to know that joy, but they're able to see that joy. And then they're able to see that and then say, how are they going to respond in life in light of the privilege that they've been given? Let me ask you a question. What have the angels learned recently from your behavior? Does your life reflect the high privilege of salvation that you've been granted in Jesus Christ? Does your life reflect a life of joy and gratitude, a life of contentment with what God has done in your life? How have you responded to this pandemic? What would the angels be able to see in your life as one who has been privileged with the salvation that you have? Peter's point is that we can rejoice in our sufferings now even though we can't see the end result. The prophets weren't able to see it. And even though we can't see the end result, God had worked through them and he would bring our experiences to a completion as well. 
We have the high privilege of a living hope that's rooted in our salvation. But with that high privilege in verses 13 through 21, with that high privilege that we have in our salvation also comes with it a responsibility. And Peter wants us to be able to live joyfully in the midst of our of our sufferings. And so he begins to outline for his readers major responsibilities that we have. He says, he talks about our conduct, he talks about our attitude, but then he brings it back down to our foundation. He's looking from the outward in, from from the general into the specific. And he says, first off, he says in verse 13 through 16, he says that we are to live a life that's holy. Live a life that's holy. Look at what he says, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." We're to fix our hope on the grace to come. Verse 13 starts off with, therefore. Therefore, in light of everything that I have said up to this point, of everything from verse one through 12, therefore, because of this, then in this section, there's really three participles and two imperatives. They're kind of translated in your ESV, but you'll notice preparing your minds for action participle, being sober-minded, participle, set your hope, that's the first imperative, fix your hope. Then you go further, not being conformed, do not be conformed, that's actually a participle, not being conformed, but then second imperative, be holy, be holy. Paul admonishes us first, preparing your minds, actually it means girding up your minds for action. And we say, well, what kind of literal translation? That's not very helpful. Well, in those days, you need to remember that they wore these long flowing robes that really hindered them from any strenuous types of activity. And so when they were gonna go into action or were going to any type of strenuous activity, they would take the hem of their robe and they would tuck it up underneath their belt so that they would be able to move quicker. And what he's saying, he's saying, Screw up your minds. Prepare your minds. We would say maybe roll up your sleeves. Get ready. Get ready. And then he said, be sober-minded. Don't be self-indulgence, but be disciplined. Self-control. And then he gets into the main imperative. Fix your hope. Set your hope. Stand firm in what you have. It's a hope without any types of reservation. Stand there. As you've prepared your mind, as you have girded up your mind, and if you're thinking clearly, fix your hope. Stand firm right there. In the midst of everything else that's happening, keep going back to that salvation that you have. Fix your hope on the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he comes back, that time will he will appear once again in the future. He says, not being conformed, do not be conformed to the former passions as obedient children, and we'll come back to that. 
do not be conformed to your former passions. That word conformed there is only used here and one other place in the New Testament, and I'll bet you you can remember where it is. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. He says, don't be conformed to this passions. Don't be conformed to this world. You are to be different. You're to be different. Because of your salvation, you are to live differently, not conform to your former passions, not conform to this world, a different people because of who you are, because of the privilege that you have in Jesus Christ. And then he says, be holy, be holy. God, the one who has called us to salvation, the one who is holy in himself, demands that we be holy just as he is holy. Completely separated from any type of wickedness. A child of God should be like his heavenly father. And at this point, you all go, whoa, 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 wait a second here. Wait a second here. The standard is clear. The standard is clear. We're to be holy like our Father. But we also realize that the believer is really unable to obtain absolute holiness in this life. We still retain that old nature, and we still live in this fallen world. Well, does that mean that we should just throw up our hands in defeat and and say, I can't do it, therefore it's irrelevant? No. The standard is still clear. You are to be holy like your father is holy. That is the standard. Holy means to be set apart. Completely set apart. Striving to live a life of purity, a life of holiness, set apart to God. Different from the world. We're to be holy in all of our conduct. Practicing what God has said. So let me ask you, does your life reflect a life of purity? You know, part of the problem that we have and difficulty that we have when we start to contemplate this is we kind of measure ourselves against the wrong standard. Typically, we measure ourselves against other Christians and we say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. But the standard is God himself. Absolute holiness. And notice through the passages, there's a contrast between the divine and the eternal things of God and the temporal types of earthly things of of humanity. And notice also that when Peter says, be holy, there's also that intentionality that kind of goes along with this. It's not just sit back, but there's an intentionality of, hey, because of the privilege, be holy, take some initiative, do something. not just settling for the immediate gratifications that the world offers, but being holy in all of our conduct. You know, if you're going to be holy, you need to know God and you need to know his word. That means, are you into a a good Bible study? Are you studying God's word? Are you into a good quiet time on a regular basis? where you are communing with God and you are 
are being with him on a regular basis? What's maybe your next step to maybe move you down that path a little bit? To grow in holiness, to, to grow in your Bible knowledge, to grow in your knowledge of God himself. What would be that next step? He's saying, take that initiative. Be holy. Be set apart from the world. The world should be able to look at you and say, whoa, they are responding to this differently than anybody else. We're to live a life that's holy, but he also says the words to live a life that's reverent. Look at verse 17. And if you call him his father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, that's a first, first conditional uh, first class conditional phrase in Greek, meaning that you do. So it's a, it's a, we believe that that's true. So you do call him, since you do call him a father who judges impartially according to one's deed. Conduct yourselves without fear. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourself with fear. In other words, we're to maintain a healthy respect and awe of the Lord. Interesting, in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, it says, the fear of man is a snare. In other words, the fear of man is gonna paralyze you. It's gonna cripple you. It's gonna cripple your courage. It's gonna cripple your standing. It's gonna cripple you. The fear of man is a snare. But then later, later on in Proverbs 14, it says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. It's a fountain of life. It's a secure fortress. It's a refuge. And the one who is in fear of the Lord has confidence to be able to face what's going on in the world. The fear of the Lord is so caught up with who God is and the attributes of God that he stands in awe of who he is and responds in obedience and respect. Matthew, 29, or Matthew 10 says, a wise man is known by whom he fears. A wise man is known by whom he fears. Who do you fear? Let me ask you a question. Are you primarily seeking to please people or are you primarily seeking to please God? You know, I know a lot, a lot of individuals that are more concerned with what people think than what God thinks. They would rather go down the path and try to please people rather than really being settled on that secure hope that they have in the salvation that's been provided and standing there and fearing God. Paul, I love Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says that he spoke not as pleasing men, but to please God who tests our hearts. In other words, he walked right into Thessalonica after being beaten in Philippi with that hope that he had in the eternal and was bold, bold in preaching the gospel. Who do you fear? Who do you fear? Well, then we're to live a life of faith and hope in God, verses 18 through 21. Look at verse 18, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like his silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Peter brings it right back down to the, right back down to the, to the crux of the issue, right back down to your salvation of having faith and hope in him and home and alone. Remember that you were redeemed by the blood of Christ. Ransom means to be redeemed. And he makes the contrast between the, the things that we think are precious, gold and silver, with the precious blood of Christ. We think that gold and silver is precious just because of what it is. But think about blood. You know, we think of our blood as precious. Jesus' blood is even more precious than that because it was given for you. Why should we be living a life of faith and hope in him? It's because of everything that he's done for us. It's only through Christ that we're gonna be able to live by faith and hope in God. And he gives us two good reasons here. One, because of what Christ did for us, he died for our sins. And because of what God did with Christ, he raised him from the dead and he was gonna give him glory in the future. What a privilege that we have. We have a privilege of a living hope that's rooted rooted in our salvation. And with that high privilege that we have in our salvation comes responsibilities. And those responsibilities live a holy life, live a life that's reverent and full of hope and faith in God. Here's the main point. It's in your notes. We who have been granted the high privilege of salvation have the great responsibility of obedience. We who have been granted the high privilege of salvation have the great responsibility of obedience. I've kind of skipped over that word obedience. But you notice that in verse 14, he says, as obedient children do not be conformed. As obedient children, it really boils down to obedience. It comes back down to obedience being the key. Now, as soon as I say the word obedience, or when you read that and you say, as obedient children, you begin to push back a little bit. I don't know if I want to be obedient. I don't like that word, obedient. I mean, there's something about that word that means that I'm going to have to conform or or maybe even relinquish my rights. I I get the feeling that I'm being dominated by some sort of authoritarian figure here. Obedience to me maybe feels restrictive, oppressive. I don't like to be oppressed. I'm not sure I like that word, obedience. But Jesus was obedient. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus was obedient to the point of death. He was obedient. Jesus says in John chapter 14, that if we love him, we will be obedient and we will keep his commandments. And so you say, well, how do I put this all together? How am I I going to be able to put that together? It's all because that obedience that Jesus is calling to is a different type of obedience. 
You see, this is an obedience that flows from the inside out. It flows from recognizing the privilege that we have to then be able to live a life in obedience to God. When I was doing my uh, clinical hospital training, clinical training in hospital chaplaincy, I thought back on this and I realized that was like 38 years ago. My, 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 my. My mentor at that time was a, a, a chaplain by the name of Chuck Hoffmeister. He had been in the pastorate and was now in the chaplaincy. I respected Chuck and as soon as I got to the chaplaincy, he was out in Merced, California. And I, Patty and I were, went out to Merced. As soon as I arrived, Chuck started giving me assignments. He said, hey, read this book and write this paper. And he started giving me assignments. And I said, hey, this is a little excessive here. You know, I thought that this was going to be kind of like a watch and learn type of thing. But, you know, you're putting some, you're putting some demands on here that it's more of a study type of environment. And they were pretty hefty. I realized that if I was going to comply to what he was asking me, I was going to have to work. So I was faced with a decision. The decision was is whether or not I was just going to kind of blow it off and just kind of pass by this thing or whether or not I was going to submit and get involved in the process and really work. Well, I decided that I was going to work and I, I worked my hoofies to the quick there that, that summer. He gave me papers to read. He gave me books to read. And it was, it was endless. It was always something, something else. And as I thought about it, the, there was a key. There was a key to what made the difference. What was the key that made the difference? The key that made the difference was Chuck himself. You see, I loved Chuck. And I respected Chuck. I had an offer who Chuck was. I respected his longevity in ministry. I respected his love for the Bible. I expected, respected his compassion that he had for people. And I knew ultimately that Chuck had my best interest in mind, that he wanted me to be the best I could be. And he, he had my best interest in mind. And so because of that, I had to trust that he knew better than me. I had to trust that his judgment and out of that respect and awe for who Chuck was, I submitted to the course that he prescribed. I wrote the papers. I read the books. Out of awe and respect for him. God is saying, we who have been granted the high privilege of salvation had the great responsibility of obedience. But that obedience does not flow out of a sense of, of compulsion or something. It flows out of a sense of gratitude for everything that God has done for us. It's an obedience that flows out of the love for the Father and a love for the Son. It's an obedience that flows out of who they are, what they have done for us. They've loved us so much that they gave us salvation. And out of that, we're obedient. In the midst of all of this stuff that's happening in our world today, you are a privileged people. You are a privileged people. 
If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're a privileged people. And because of that privilege of being in Christ, God's calling you to be different, to act differently, to look differently, to respond differently, not out of a sense of compulsion, but out of a sense of gratitude for who he is and what he's done. You're to look and behave differently than everybody else. He says, be obedient. He says, be holy. Put your faith and your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the firm foundation that you provided for us in salvation that allows us to be able to thrive even in the midst of all of the trials that that we experience. Father, I pray that you would help us to be obedient to your word, that we would live a life that's holy, that we would live a life that's set apart to you, that others would be able to see and that others would be able to be drawn to a saving knowledge of you as a result. Mold us, shape us, conform us to your image. For we pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.